Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Natalia Reagan. Today, you'll learn about why we now know what a dinosaur's cloaca looks like. You'll also learn why smells change with context from food science expert Harold McGee. Let's satisfy some curiosity. For the first time ever, researchers have discovered the fossilized rear end of a dinosaur that leaves nothing to the imagination. And I mean nothing. We're not talking bones. They found the fossilized remains of the soft tissues. And it turns out that this dinosaur sported a pretty efficient backside. The species in question is called Cetocosaurus. More like Cetocosaurus, if you know what I mean. It was related to Triceratops, but it had a look all of its own. These beauties were the size of a yellow lab. They walked on two legs, and they had a face like a turtle, with a horn on each cheek. Their tails were adorned with a tuft of long, feather-like bristles. And now we know way too much about what was going on under that tail. Specifically, these researchers found the fossilized remains of the dino's cloaca. That's an all-purpose opening used for both waste and reproduction. A lot of paleontologists already suspected that dinosaurs had a cloaca. That's because birds, dinosaurs, and alligators, dinosaurs' closest living relatives, have them too. The big news is that we have hard evidence for this soft orifice. See, nearly all bodies are completely lost to time shortly after death. They get eaten or they decay. But sometimes, when everything happens just right, a bone is preserved. Even less often, a whole skeleton will survive. That's why pretty much everything we know about dinosaurs is based on a surprisingly small number of fossilized individuals. There's nothing in the laws of physics that says any part of the body has to be preserved. It's more of a right place, right time kind of thing. Animals are dying constantly, so it makes sense that some fraction of those corpses would end up somewhere safe from decay and scavenging, like a tar pit or under a heap of volcanic ash. The 100-million-year-old cloaca is such a choice find because fossilized soft tissues are way less common than fossilized bone. There are a lot of reasons for that. One big one is that flesh offers a lot of easily available energy to all kinds of organisms, from vultures to microbes. That's why soft tissue only ends up being preserved under precise circumstances. A corpse has a better-than-average chance of preservation if an animal dies in a volcanic explosion or in a desert, where the sun can dry it out before other organisms can start to chow down. So this cloaca was definitely a serendipitous discovery. More like serendipitous. So if you're so inclined, check out the picture of the fossil. We've linked it in the show notes. So while you're there, take some time to appreciate just how lucky we are to have inherited that fossilized rear end. Have you ever noticed how something can smell terrible in one context, but wonderful in another? Like, I'd never drink something that smelled like crayons or Band-Aids. But if those smells waft from a glass of scotch, suddenly it smells delicious to me. Or how about when two completely unrelated things smell similar, like the way old books have a hint of vanilla? If you've ever wondered why that happens, well, today's guest is just the expert to tell you. Harold McGee is a leading expert on the science of food and cooking who recently turned his sights on smells with the new book, Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. In our conversation, I asked him, how can two totally different things smell the same? Well, uh, and that's where chemistry is a wonderful guide, because it turns out that these different things that you wouldn't think would smell like each other 
smell like each other because they share molecules. So smells are triggered by volatile molecules, that is to say, uh, little bits of the world around us that are small enough that they can fly out of whatever it is that they're in and into the air. And once they get into the air, then we can draw them into our noses and detect them. And so those uh, odd combinations, things that smell like each other uh, that you wouldn't expect, smell like each other because they do share molecules. They share individual molecules that are in those materials and often for different reasons, but give them that common characteristic. Wow. So what, what happens when those volatile molecules go into our noses? Well, we have a set of about 400 different olfactory receptors in our nose, and they're there specifically for the purpose of detecting volatile molecules and reporting on those molecules to our brain. And they act in a kind of combinatorial way. So it's not that for every smell there's a receptor, it's that the pattern of receptor activation that comes from a particular smell registers in the brain as that particular smell. And what happens is that the receptors report their activity to the brain, and then the brain makes sense of that and integrates that with our database of past experiences. It integrates it with the other uh, inputs from senses, from taste, from vision, from hearing, and puts all those things together into a coherent composite perception which is the perception of a smell. So we're not just chemical sensors. We're actually interpreting those inputs. And that, that suggests that maybe in a different context, something could smell completely different. Is that right? That's right. In fact, uh, the very same molecule in two different things can uh, give us two very different impressions. There's a wonderful experiment that was done by Rachel Hertz at Brown University a decade or so ago. She took one single molecule, butyric acid, and presented it to people, subjects in the experiment, and asked them what the molecule reminded them of. And uh, depending on how she described the scene, that molecule could be either disgusting or, or wonderful because butyric acid is a molecule that, that's found in aged cheeses like Parmesan, but it's also found in vomit. And so if you're thinking about cheese, it's nice. If you're thinking about being sick, then it's disgusting. And so the, the, the context uh, has a very strong influence on how it is that our brain interprets exactly the same molecule. One of the most important for me for just continuing to enjoy and to increase my enjoyment of the physical world was the discovery that even though something can initially be off-putting, a smell can be off-putting, disgusting, something you would maybe not want to encounter again, but if you're writing a book about it and you're trying to describe it, then you do sniff it over and over again, and it can come to be interesting in its own right. So I went to Singapore and I experienced durian fruit, which are this very strange combination of oniony and garlicky and skunky and fruity, <laughs> like strawberry, all at the same time, all wrapped up in one, which at first, um, well, reading about it, I thought that sounds terrible. And my first smell and taste 
were not very pleasing, but uh, because I kept tasting in order to be able to describe it better and to, you know, just register the experience, I really got to enjoy it. If nothing else, then for that strange combination, which is so unusual and so unique. So the, the, that was a discovery for me that even things that are not necessarily at first sniff pleasant can end up being a source of fascination and interest. Again, that was food science expert and author Harold McGee. His new book is called Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. And you can find a link to pick it up in today's show notes. Harold McGee will be back tomorrow to talk about the smells that existed before Earth was born. Let's recap today's takeaways. Well, we learned that scientists made an astounding find of a dinosaur's cloaca, the hole that they use to expel wastes and to reproduce. This is a super rare discovery since soft tissue really doesn't preserve very much. We're so lucky, but we are. And I actually call, so I have two chickens, Jeanette and Carol, and I actually call their cloaca that, I call the cloaca the hat trick of holes, if you're familiar with uh, with hockey. Hat trick in hockey is essentially getting three goals in a row. And so the cloaca is responsible for expelling feces and urine, usually at the same time. And then, of course, the sex. So I call it the hat trick of holes. It's where they do all the things. And it's very efficient. Right. Right? Like, just one to rule them all. I like that this gives us a chance to talk about how hard it is to create a fossil because, uh, you know, fossils, you have to have like a perfect environment to create an actual fossil. If you think about it, so many things have died. And one thing to note is that when animals die and they're going to be scavenged, generally they'll go for the softest parts of the body, which include the eyeballs and the rear end. So that's another reason why this is an extraordinary find, because you would think that, yeah, this poor little Cetacosaurus died. I don't know what exactly would have come along scavenging its poor little lifeless body, but it would have probably gone for its eyes and its cloaca, and it did not. So it's sort of like finding fossilized Halloween candy where all the Snickers are left. Yeah, like that. So this is really rare. This is such a lucky find. Yeah. We also learned that molecules that make up smell can somehow seem almost altered because of the context. So like when you're sniffing them in one context, they might smell good, but in a different context, ooh, not so great. So I think that really, I don't know, changes the way I, I kind of smell the world around me, honestly. Like what smells good and why? Yeah. Do you want to know a kind of embarrassing smell that I think smells good? Yeah. Is a women's locker room. And the reason is because the smell of women's sweat reminds me of ballet class when I was little. And I'm thinking when I was like seven or eight. And there were all the older girls who I looked up to and who were doing like serious workouts in there. You know, their their rehearsals were very intense. And so they would sweat a little bit. And I remember that was a very specific smell. And that will always remind me of being a little kid who was like looking up to these idols of mine. Oh, that's really sweet. I love that. So olfactory senses, it's one of those things where I, I think that as humans, we don't rely on it, obviously, as much as like, say, a dog or a cat. But like, we don't use it quite like that. But it, it really does imprint memory on us. You know what I mean? Like the smell of my granny's house. My granny's from was from Kentucky. And, and it was very humid and musty in there. And it's like, I'll walk into a place and I'll smell it. And I, you know, for whatever reason, and it's probably a mixture of, you know, mustiness, she at one point had a wood burning stove. So like it brings back, like you said, a flood of memories. And there's something really lovely about that. 
perfume, you know, like your grandma's perfume. And you're just like, wait a minute, grandma, where are you? Yeah, absolutely. Today's first story was written by Grant Curran and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Script writing by Natalia Reagan. Today's episode was edited by Jonathan McMichael and our producer is Cody Goff. Remember the nose knows and join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.